Prestige listeners, it's Derek. Uh, I am very lucky to be joined this week and very grateful to be joined by Adrian Zakhar, uh, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Toronto. He is the co-host of a technology virtual conversation series called Technologies of Power uh, with Madiha Tahir, which is available online. We will have a link to that uh, in the show descriptions. But uh, Adrian is a historian of the late Ottoman period and the modern Middle East. And we are uh, here with what I would say is probably a little bit overdue discussion of the situation in Syria in the wake of the earthquakes earlier this month. So Adrian, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So uh, I, I do want to try to uh, focus as much as possible on what's been happening over the last few weeks in terms of the earthquakes and their aftermath. But I realize that to understand the, the, the situation in which these earthquakes happened requires going back to you know, a lot of other things that have happened over the last uh, 12 years. So uh, why don't we start with just sort of an open-ended question. You can you know, uh, take this in the direction that you uh, think would be most useful to people. Describe the, the present political situation throughout Syria and the various enclaves, who controls what, uh, and how we got to that, that state of affairs. Right. So when we are thinking about the impact of the recent earthquake on Syria, um, I think it's helpful to uh, remind ourselves that there's multiple Syrias today. Um, we can think of Syria as at least uh, being composed of, of Syrian populations as being uh, subject to at least four uh, different uh, conditions. One of them is uh, the Syrians uh, being living under the control of the Syrian regime. Uh, so that would be uh, the most populated uh, and the biggest cities of Syria uh, that stretch from Aleppo to Damascus from north to south. Um, and then enclaves that are uh, effectively the results of the 12-year-long civil war uh, that began in 2011. These enclaves are uh, located uh, in the far south of Syria and the northwest of Syria, the north of Syria. And they are Arab-controlled enclaves. Then to the east of Syria, there's a third uh, let's say, a uh, set of territories uh, that are the sort of autonomous Kurdish-controlled areas uh, with an American military presence. Um, and then there is also, of course, the Syrian diaspora uh, that uh, lives, that is sort of spread out in different countries, uh, mostly surrounding uh, uh, the state of Syria, uh, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and of course, Turkey, um, and the, you know, the broader diaspora in, in, in Europe and the rest of the world. And so, of course, the earthquake, the epicenter was in uh, southeastern Turkey. The areas that, was the, that were the most affected were uh, on Turkish territor territories. And, of course, um, it affected uh, areas on the borders uh, uh, with, uh, with Turkey, uh, primarily Aleppo uh, and um, the city of Aleppo and its surrounding uh, uh, regions uh, and uh, the the enclave of, of Idlib and sort of the northern stretch of the territory that's also a, an autonomous enclave uh, out of the civil war. Let's talk ab about that enclave because the political dynamics, you have part of that area that's controlled by uh, Tahrir al-Sham, the, the former 
Al Qaeda affiliate, if you want to go back that far. Um, you have part of the, the area is controlled by Turkey, but through, uh, in some cases, proxy, uh, rebel groups. Talk about the, the dynamics at play, uh, specifically in the part of, of Syria that was most affected. So essentially, during the civil war, the uh, the Syrian regime uh, lost control over uh, broad uh, spans of its territory, uh, which was uh, quickly invested by uh, opposition groups uh, of different stripes. Um, and with the help of powerful patrons uh, over the past 12 years, um, most notably Russia and Iran, uh, the Syrian regime has been able to reconquer parts of its uh, most of the, of the of the northern territory. Um, uh, at the exception of these enclaves. Um, and in these enclaves essentially live uh, the remainings of these rebel rebel groups, the original population, of course, but also uh, populations that were displaced from theaters of operations within current Syrian territory under the Syrian regime that were evacuated uh, under uh, the authority of the UN uh, in the past few years. So these enclaves are uh, being ruled by different rebel groups, um, and they are populated by populations that are not only from these regions, but also from coming from all over Syria that got caught uh, in the fire uh, and that were evacuated later. Um, and of course, so within these enclaves, there's an absence of uh, state uh, of, uh, of state governance, and uh, uh, the infrastructure was badly damaged by years of bombardment which has added to uh, the sort of catastrophic uh, consequences of the earthquake. Let's talk a little bit just to, again, provide some background. Uh, talk about the effect that the war had on this part of Syria and what the humanitarian situation was like, both for the people who were already living in this region, but you know, n- now adding uh, you know, a large number of displaced persons from other parts of Syria. What did the humanitarian situation look like in this region prior to the earthquakes? So prior to the earthquake, the situation was already dire. Uh, there's recorded uh, uh, malnutrition, uh, areas of famine, and, 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 uh, and an uh, outbreak of cholera that was reported a few weeks before uh, the earthquake. Um, because of the systematic targeting of uh, medical facilities, hospitals, uh, and communal centers, um, the, the, not only the, you can imagine in a war, roads and bridges and any sort of infrastructure will be damaged, but also the sort of medical, um, um, infrastructure was also systematically targeted, um, which contributed to sort of the, hum- the humanitarian crisis that was unfolding already before the earthquake. So the earthquake is only adding a layer of problems to an area that was already affected. What can we say about, um, in, ter- in, in addition to the, the impacts of the war and, you know, bombardments by the Syrian government and the Russians, uh, what can we say about the, the governance or maybe lack thereof uh, that these regions have had over the last 12 years, in particular thinking about Idlib under uh, Tahrir al-Sham, but also in these areas that, that are you know, more or less occupied by Turkey or at least controlled through, uh, through proxies. Has there been a, a focus on taking care of displaced people? Have they been, you know, kind of shunted into camps and forgotten about? What do we know about uh, the way these places have been administered? 
So these places have been administered by these different rebel groups, um, uh, relying mostly on humanitarian aid. Uh, if you look at the area of Idlib that was populated by approximately a million and a half inhabitants before the war, now there is three to four million people living in these areas. So you can imagine the sort of transformation in terms of uh, urban fabric. Um, and, um, and so these areas have been... Um, on a lifeline, essentially, uh, living off humanitarian aid, coming mostly from Turkey, from the neighboring uh, area, like the neighboring region of Hatay. Um, and that has been a part of the main, uh, the main, like the main problem today, uh, which is the NGOs that were taking care of uh, delivering aid to these regions uh, would get their supplies from Turkey. Uh, so if you wanted to send a tent uh, or a temporary shelter, uh, for these populations uh, living, un living under these rebel groups, uh, you'd have to uh, buy these supplies in Turkey. Now these supplies are no longer available. Um, and uh, we can perhaps address the question of the corridors, um, which, uh, in a sense, these, these areas have been completely enclosed, except for, uh, uh, you know, very specific uh, roads uh, under uh, UN monitoring. Uh, and... Uh, out of three, two of them were closed until the earthquake. Two of, uh, two, like, two of them were closed, and they've been reopened since then. But the issue is, is, is more complicated, uh, in a sense, because most of the aid that would come to these areas came from uh, local NGOs operating in Turkey that can no longer operate today because the areas surrounding these enclaves have been badly hit by the earthquake. Let's talk about the aid corridors, because as you say, that's an issue that's that's come up again and they've been uh, reopened. At one point, there were three corridors coming from Turkey into uh, Idlib and, and Aleppo province. Uh, that was reduced. Talk about the, the politics that went into that. And uh, the alternative has always been held out, uh, you know, as this, this issue has been debated, that humanitarian aid should flow through the Syrian government. Has Has that worked yet? Is there any interaction and a humanitarian i mean I, i'm i guess this you know has ramifications for the earthquake relief effort itself but more broadly has there been any kind of humanitarian uh, framework built up via the syrian government into these regions no, not at all. The Syrian government has no interest in uh, delivering aid to these regions. To the contrary, I think it, if it could divert them, um, it would. Um, and so any, any aid or uh, relief effort has to come from outside. Um, now, like the rest of the Syrian population, I think these enclaves are being taken hostage, hostage by the Syrian government that would not deliver aid, but also taken hostage by uh, regional uh, and, and, and global powers, including Russia and Iran. Um, the corridors were closed or the, the reopening of these corridors had to be negotiated uh, with Russia. And so to some extent, um, this has become part of a, a negotiation process that is uh, related to the war in Ukraine. Um, and so the delivery of aid in these regions uh, has to come from outside. Uh, the issue is both... Um, the, the, the importance of regional and great powers and the weight they have in making these decisions, but also logistically, as I mentioned already, um, the, uh, the structure of humanitarian aid in that region um, sort of relied on local NGOs in Turkey that are no longer operational. Let's push a little bit more on this. What, talk about 
what we know at this point in terms of the impact of the earthquake. I know the, the casualty figures are changing by the day and, and recovery efforts have got to be uh, fairly slow given all the, the political realities of, of this region and, and the situation that it's been under. Uh, but what do we know right now in terms of, of the earthquake impact on this part of Syria? Mm-hmm. So um, in the first uh, few days after the earthquake, the road was badly damaged. So the only road that would lead to that region. So no machinery um, and no truck with any sort of relief effort could access. So people were pretty much left on their own, sort of digging through the rubbles. Um, and so all the relief efforts or uh, digging efforts that you might have seen in Turkey did not happen in these areas of Syria uh, because of a lack of heavy machinery and of um, any sort of infrastructure or um, machinery that could that would allow for uh, digging through the rub- through the rubbles, and so people are pretty much left on the left to their own um, to their own fate, right? And um, and so they hasn't there hasn't been the the UN sec- secretary general has or the UN envoy has uh, showed up uh, a, a week after the earthquake uh, in those areas, uh, pretty much to admit that they had been. Um, uh, a lack of response or a lack of reaction. Um, again, primarily because uh, the help to these areas was organized locally and that this local uh, fabric of NGOs was uh, damaged by the earthquake. Um, and so the situation is dire. There's a lack of food, a lack of fuel. So even if you'd have uh, the machinery to dig through the rubbles, there's a lack of fuel to, to make them um, uh, operate. Uh, and of course, uh, a lack of uh, uh, medical supplies for the population who might be wounded. What's the alternative? I mean, what's is there an alternative emerging here? Because of course, the the issue of local NGOs in Turkey, uh, they've been devastated by the earthquake as well, and and any resources in Turkey are presumably going to be turned to recovery in that country. What's the what? What are the possible alternatives here in terms of getting aid into this region? Um, you know, it, it, presumably it's got to come still from Turkey. But how do you, how? What's the effort like to sort of stand up alternative uh, operations to to do that? Well, I think there needs to be a better organization in the sense that uh, uh, a better distribution of aid. Um, and uh, 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 to ensure that the roads remain open and to ensure that a flow of aid is able to enter uh, these areas. Um, at the same time, I think uh, uh, these enclaves are, by definition, temporary solutions. And so the better alternative is to uh, think of a broader solution for the Syrian conflict. That's I don't think there is a really good alternative to keeping these enclaves alive. They're not designed to... Um, to sort of operate on their own. They are not uh, autonomous economic units. They are not meant to remain that way, right? They're just a temporary solution coming out of a 12-year-long civil war um, that has, uh, you know, devastated not only these areas, but also the rest of Syria. And so entangled with the delivery of aid, entangled with the question of sanctions, is the broader political solution that has to be found uh, to the Syrian conflict. And I think perhaps this touches upon the the broader issue of sanctions too. That's a great segue. Why don't we talk about sanctions? Talk about the, the U.S. sanctions that, that have been imposed on the Assad government, um, what they encompass. And, uh, you know, again, this gets into ba- a lot of background about the war and 
uh, about the U.S. presence in Syria that that is important. Uh, again, I don't want to distract too much or detract too much from from focusing on the quake. Uh, but where do these sanctions come from, and how how hard have they hit the Syrian economy uh, in general? Mm-hmm. So the Syrian sanctions, there's multiple generations of sanctions that uh, emerged out of the civil war that began in 2011. Um, they were intensified a few years ago by the so-called Caesar sanctions in 2019. Um, and essentially, these sanctions originally were meant to uh, stop human rights violations, and they were adopted in the wake of chemical uh, chemical attacks against civilian populations. Um, and They've been having uh, a terrible toll on the Syrian economy within sort of within the areas living under the Syrian state, um, because uh, they're meant to um, essentially uh, uh, target the Syrian regime. But uh, the Syrian regime is very shrewd in finding uh, ways to avoid these sanctions, either by uh, creating shell companies. Uh, to which ownership is sort of uh, less traceable. Um, um, and, uh, and so the, most of the toll of these sanctions has been taken by uh, small and medium enterprises within Syria. Um, and so although they're meant to uh, target and harm the Syrian regime itself, um, it ends up uh, uh, harming the Syrian population itself. Um, now, lifting these sanctions and there's, I think, uh, you know, uh, a million good reasons to say we should lift these sanctions, a million good reasons to say we should not. So from the perspective of these enclaves, lifting these sanctions would be a disaster because it would essentially uh, restart the flow of money into the Syrian regime, which would enable it to buy more weapons and reconquer these enclaves. Uh, and so that's a humanitarian, another humanitarian crisis looming in the background with these populations now crossing into Turkey and a new refugee crisis. And so from the perspective of these enclaves, lifting the sanctions um, would mean a catastrophe because it would strengthen the, the Syrian regime and enable it to buy more weapons and to try and reconquer these areas. Um, now from the perspective of the Syrian population living under the Syrian regime, um, these sanctions have not really been harming the regime. It's been sort of taking a toll on them. Um, and so there is a, a there are there are calls to lift these sanctions. Um, now it should be said perhaps that the sanctions are not supposed to include humanitarian aid, but in effect, because of their nature, there's two types of sanctions. They're like you know primary sanctions, which are um, which forbid uh, let's say American or EU uh, organizations from transferring money uh, or any uh, uh, any. Um, um, uh, let's say, anything that might sort of help the Syrian regime reconstruct the country. Um, And then there's secondary sanctions, which means that any organization, even outside the United States or outside the EU, might be uh, held accountable for, uh, and might be blacklisted essentially, uh, for uh, uh, transferring any funds into Syria. And so because of, even though there are exceptions for humanitarian aid, there's something called a chilling effect, whereby no humanitarian organization will take the risk to, or even private enterprise will take the risk to be blacklisted in that way and sort of close itself off from the U.S. and EU markets. And so it is much easier to just uh, not have to deal with uh, delivering aid to Syria. Um, And so even though uh, Syria has seen at least the, the areas under the Syrian regime and even other areas have seen 
aid coming in from a lot of Arab countries. There's very little aid coming from Western states into Syria and into a rebel areas as well. I mean, this is this is sort of the argument that's made uh, about sanctions in other places like Iran, uh, Venezuela, uh, that you you impose. Uh, there is there's a, a another way to look at this. Is you impose this sort of uh, targeted sanctions against an individual or a company, uh, you know, blacklisting assets or you know travel bans or things like that. But then there's these very broad sectoral sanctions that that hit you know an entire financial network. And even if you claim that, you know, we exempt humanitarian goods, uh, you've, you've cut off any avenue of, of commerce. I mean, you, you've shut down uh, the ability to, to, to deal and to import things. Uh, I know that the U.S. has, uh, the Biden administration did announce this, uh, you know, made a big deal out of it, this 180-day exemption, uh, blanket exemption for anything having to do with earthquake relief. Um, have you seen any effect from that or do, in your, is your impression that, uh, the chilling effect is still there, that, that, uh, companies and, uh, NGOs are, are still reluctant to, to risk, just run the risk of, of tripping U.S. sanctions? Right. I think this is, um, this is a good question in the sense that, in the sense these, these sanctions, there's both an inflation of sanctions and the lack of clarity so that it is much more convenient to not try and get into a gray zone rather than, uh, um, uh, use the sort of amendments, the so-called amendments to these sanctions. So the United States uh, declared an, uh, uh, sort of a suspensions of the of, of sanctions when it comes to humanitarian aid last week. The EU yesterday, um, but uh, from what's coming out of Syria, it hasn't had any effect so far. So, for example, within Syria, there is. A, 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 a crucial lack of medical supplies, not of medications, because the Syrian industry is still managing to manufacture 90% of its needs in terms of medication, but um, in terms of um, medical instruments and medical supplies. Uh, um, there's a crucial need to, um, to, to, in a sense, for Syrians to acquire them, um, but there still hasn't had any effect to the change in policy either last week or yesterday by the by the European Union. What are people in the well to the extent that we could know, I guess, um, what are people in the regions that were hardest hit by the quake um, asking for? Are they are they asking for? Uh, sanctions relief to the extent, again, that this is even possible to know, uh, you know, what, what are, what are the people in these areas? And, you know, I, I know, you know, that, that gets filtered through the various rebel groups, some of whom, you know, may be more or less popular with the people they're, they're, uh, governing at this point. Uh, but what can we say about what, what would actually, uh, what's actually desired here or what would actually benefit these folks? Well, I think given the urgency of the situation, there is a, a, the, a need for basic supplies that even the Turkish population is needing. Tents, um, you know, hygiene products, food, uh, clean water, access to a bathroom. Um, and I think this is, uh, uh, at least in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, this is what people um, uh, sort of need uh, uh, to, um, to start, you know, Again, in the in the in those enclaves, it's about re- rebuilding their lives, but rebuilding lives that were already temporary, right? They're already uh, these are already to some extent refugee camps, um, and so 
I think there's a, the, the, you know, what, what we've heard is that people need those basic uh, facilities. There's a sense of abandonment that have been, I think, uh, uh, expressed by these populations of being abandoned by the international community. Uh, and for good reasons, right? Um, and, um, and yeah, so I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, I think the tragedy of the Syrian situation is that helping one segment of the population runs the risk of harming the other segment of the population. So if you'd wanted to, to, to uh, help the Syrians that are in regime areas, uh, you'll, in effect, be contributing to a rebuilding of the capacity of the Syrian regime, which would ultimately uh, lead to uh, more violence for those enclaves. Um, and so I think this is, um, you know, to some extent, these areas and, and Syria in general are a little bit in the waiting room of history, right? They have to deal with uh, different regional and global powers using its territories as a playground, as a theater of operations, whether it is NATO and Russia or it is Israel and Iran, um, these are regional and global conflicts that affect um, the the ways in which uh, uh, these areas uh, are being uh, helped after the earthquake. I, I want to come back to the issue of, or the, the potential, uh, let's say, for aid to come from another direct from the other direction through. Damascus through the, the government-held territory. I realize there are uh, concerns about the Syrian government, which hasn't, uh, I would say, earned the benefit of the doubt on, on any of those concerns. There are uh, concerns about even if we could assume uh, good faith from the Syrian government, whether the rebel groups uh, controlling northwestern Syria would work with the government to bring in humanitarian aid, whether they'd be willing to do that. Uh, what it would mean politically in terms of, you know, the Assad uh, uh, government's control or, uh, you know, in, intention of, of regaining control over these regions. But there was a story this week, so uh, either the 22nd or the 23rd, uh, that suggested that one of the factors in, in getting uh, Bashar, convincing Bashar al-Assad to sort of give the UN a green light to reopen additional aid corridors from Turkey was uh, nudging from the UAE, from the UAE foreign minister who was in Damascus the day before Assad made that announcement and, uh, you know, kind of urged him. And the UAE has made some inroads that other Arab countries have not in terms of, you know, rebuilding relationship, uh, a relationship with the Assad government. Uh, I wonder if there's a potential for a regional normalization, not involving the U.S., not involving the U.N. necessarily directly, uh, but for Arab countries in the region to, to you know, reestablish some kind of uh, more normal relationship with the Assad government and, and maybe through that, uh, you know, pressure Assad or urge Assad something uh, to, you know, participate in, in a, in a relief operation. Uh, because it, given, given all the devastation in Turkey and what that's done to the networks through which this aid was coming, I, I don't, I'm not sure there's any other alternative at this point to, to something like that. But I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts uh, about something like that. Right. I mean, the, I mean, one should not forget that, you know, over the past 12 years, uh, it's been clear that the Assad regime understands, you know, force and nothing but force in a way. Um, and that if there is a process of normalization, it will be part of 
um, a process of re-legitimization of this regime. Um, and so it will not do, um, I don't think we should, ex we can expect the Assad regime, um, that the Assad regime will uh, enter into normalization uh, in, within the framework of a power sharing agreement, but more um, with the objective of uh, regaining legitimacy over these areas. Uh, so there's a process of weaponizing aid that has been going on for the past years already. Um, but at least today, there's a, uh, in a sense, uh, because there's a inextricable, an inextricable situation, um, and at the same time, a set of political and ethical dilemmas on both sides, uh, or on all sides uh, of these uh, sort of ceasefire lines, um, that I don't think the uh, the the that that would be that that's the ideal. And I think that's what everyone uh, uh, among these uh, Arab regime is is sort of hoping to to get, which is uh, to trade um, a process of normalization for a power sharing agreement. Um, there is also, on the other hand, a recognition, I think an increasing recognition that the Syrian regime has prevailed, and perhaps you have to now deal with that situation. Um, and so I think it's, it will be a fast moving situation. As soon as, as, soon as uh, normalization processes are underway, um, the the regime will try and gain and gain more traction over the conditions and over um, the uh, the outcomes of uh, of the the delivery of that aid. Um, and so, I don't think we can um, predict uh, what the outcome of the process will be, because each actor is going to try to gain something along the way. And at the same time, there is perhaps, from the perspective of these regional players, a recognition that the Syrian regime has prevailed and it should be now the main actor. The other ma major regional player, of course, in this uh, process has been Turkey uh, all throughout the civil war. I mean, Tur Turkey uh, has supported the rebels. It's occupying swaths of northern uh, Syria, ostensibly because uh, of the Kurds. Uh, but, and it's, it's been Turkey through which, you know, as we've said, uh, most of the aid coming into this region has, has come. Uh, Turkey's got its own problems now to deal with, certainly. I mean, the, the earthquake has, has devastated, uh, a large chunk of that country is almost as much as it's devastated the, the, these areas in Syria that were already, uh, struggling. But I'm, I'm curious. I haven't seen anything, but I, I, you know, I, I would, uh, defer to you on this. Has there been any um, indication from anyone in the Turkish government that they are paying attention to what's happening in Syria and, and you know, trying to, uh, as they're rebuilding or as they're recovering from their own, uh, you know, in, in, their, in the aftermath of the earthquake on their own side of the border, that there's any kind of effort to, to make sure that humanitarian aid is uh, reestablished, that this, this capacity is rebuilt to uh, to help people in Syria. Right. So until now, the Turkish state has been, let's say, the most stable and strongest player in that uh, in, in that area. But because it's been stunned by the earthquake in its own on its own territory, um, there's been, I think, uh, in the first phase after the earthquake, there's been uh, silence coming out of the Turkish authorities, focusing on their own territory and their own populations, and for good reasons. Um, now. The, I think it's important to note that uh, there are elections coming coming out in Turkey this year, um, and that matters for multiple reasons from a uh, from a perspective of foreign policy. 
the foreign policy will play a role in those uh, elections later this year. And at the same time, there is three and a half, if not more, um, Syrian refugees in Turkey. Uh, and there's uh, tensions rising, especially now that the Turkish population uh, has found itself in need um, and perhaps is thinking that like, perhaps they should no longer host these Syrian refugees. Um, this is not new. It didn't come from the earthquake or it didn't start with the earthquake. Uh, for the past few years, there's been rising tensions uh, between sort of Turkish populations and uh, Syrian refugees in Turkey. But it can only be exacerbated by um, uh, by the earthquake. Now, what you hear from, for example, right-wing media in Turkey is that uh, a lot of the Turkish population from these areas will have to leave uh, for the reconstruction period. Uh, and there is a fear, uh, perhaps an irrational fear, uh, that these areas will be taken over by Syrians. And so there's a broader sort of cultural demographic remaking of that region. So all these sort of discourses and fears will play out in the upcoming Turkish elections. And I think from the perspective of Turkey, um, the democratic process that's at play or that's at stake even uh, in the next few months will determine um, the stance of the government towards Syrian refugees. So once again, Syrians find themselves entangled in, a, in, a, in, 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 a, in conditions that they did not really um, uh, choose and they're in, they're in that sort of waiting room, waiting to see what another, what the the, the democratic process in another country will um, will play out for them uh, and for their ability to stay and find shelter. I don't want to get too far into the the Turkish politics, which is a, a you know some level a separate issue. But as you say, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of what happens next in Syria does ride on the outcome of this election, assuming uh, that it happens and it's not postponed. I know there's been talk of that as well. Um, but I do want to want to ask about uh, the other vulnerable population here. It's not just Syrians in Syria, displaced Syrians who have wound up in Idlib or uh, Aleppo. There is a, a huge Syrian refugee population in Turkey. Um, I, I don't know the distribution uh, in terms of how many of them are still living near the border versus, you know, have moved on to other parts of Turkey over the past several years. But um, how badly was that population impacted by the earthquake, especially I would I would think in Hatay uh, province, but but, uh, you, you know, even elsewhere uh, and and what can we say anything about the situation that they're facing uh, as the, the recovery effort goes on? Well, Syrians have been migrating to Turkey ever since the beginning of the civil war uh, in areas surrounding the Syrian border. So that includes not only Hatay, but also Gaziantep and, and areas further in the north. And they went there to find shelter. It, I don't think, you know, this was not an economic migration or, uh, or a migration for, you know, for you know, move, wanting to move to Turkey, but really to find safety and trying to uh, build a second life while waiting to uh, remain, while waiting, waiting for the time when they could return to Syria. Um, and so they were already living in a, in a temporary, uh, within a temporary condition, temporary situation. Um, and um, with the, the economic uh, situation of Turkey, which was already uh, bad before the earthquake, um, uh, that their situation can only worsen now um, because they were already occupying the lowest paying jobs. 
uh, they were already o- occupying the least uh, desirable, let's say, uh, uh, housing units uh, or uh, places to stay. Um, and so now that much of the infrastructure of southeastern Turkey has been destroyed, um, they'll have to either, uh, there's an increase of rent all over Turkey, right, even for Turkish citizens. Um, and so they'll be at the, uh, at the tail end of that as well. Um, some people, uh, some Syrians from Turkey are now trying to return to Syria, uh, thinking that the situation might actually be better. Uh, at least they won't face uh, uh, the, you know, xenophobia or um, they won't face uh, a hostile, let's say, segment of the Turkish population by returning to Syria. For others, it is not even an option because of the Syrian regime as well uh, or other rebel groups that they might not want to live under. Um, and so for these people, uh, there's now the, the, you know, the, the question of migration further east, further west to Europe, right? That is reopening. Um, and that plays out also in the, uh, the question of sanctions when it comes to, uh, European states as well. Um, lifting the sanctions for the Syrian regime will likely result into another refugee crisis. Um, and so that, um, that is part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, we could we could we could do a whole episode just on the refugee crisis and the the unwillingness of European countries to uh, open up to asylum seekers, but that would take us uh, down a completely different path. I, I want to kind of close here with a, a, a two part question. Uh, one, what would you like to see as you're observing the situation? What what would you like to see happen as the, in, in terms of the next steps to try and uh, maximize? Uh, the amount and the speed uh, of aid that gets to people uh, in the earthquake zone who need it. And two, um, can, if people are listening and want to donate, contribute in some way, where, where should they look? You know, what are the places they should uh, be looking to? So, you know, it's, it's a, the, the Syrian situation is difficult because you're facing multiple political and ethical dilemmas and it's an, an inextricable situation where you have to pick the lesser evil in a sense, right? Um, and so um, I think the part of what's at stake here is a redefinition of how Western uh, states use sanctions and the workings of these sanctions so that they do not or they no longer um, result in these situation where by lifting the sanction, you're actually imperiling, you're, you're putting uh, uh, entire segments of a population in peril. But by keeping them, you are, you know, you're, you're harming the other segment of the population. And so I think they should be, uh, uh, you know, um, a, a wider, let's say, uh, rethinking of the rationale uh, and the mechanics of these sanctions. Um, and I think uh, diplomacy should find a way to uh, both uh, manage to, let's say, deliver uh, aid to the people who need it, but at the same time trade this for a political solution. Because all of these solutions, whether it be these enclaves or even the Syrian regime itself, are temporary. Uh, I don't think there's no, then there's no long-term vision here. The issue, I think, really, that's at stake is that um, Syrians are taken hostage with, within these larger political diplomatic agendas, whether it is the war in Ukraine or the tensions and rivalry between Iran and Israel. And I think um, thinking, um, let's say, 
rethinking the mechanics and structures of these sanctions so that they're able to um, to deliver aid while at the same time doing so um, in a way that pushes the Syrian regime towards a political solution and a power-sharing agreement uh, would be the solution in a way. Um, when it comes to delivering aid, I think there's there are uh, again, I think the, the, there are multiple organizations. I mean, the Red Cross is one of them. I live in Canada. The Canadian government matches any donation to the Red Cross uh, to uh, for for aid in in Turkey and Syria. Um, there are local organizations in uh, in um, uh, in Turkey that also deliver aid to Syria, uh, and uh, I'd be happy to communicate those. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I think. Uh, the main issue here is really rethinking sanctions because you could have these organizations that have money and that have resources to be sent, but that this, this, the, these resources and this aid is not being delivered to the people, uh, because of the, 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 the structures and the, the workings of these sanctions. And so I think there's, of course, donations that are important, but there's also, uh, pressures on our governments. Uh, to uh, redefine, let's say, the conditions of uh, uh, of, of uh, these sanctions and sort of Western involvement in these conflicts uh, in the next few months. Adrian Zakhar, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program uh, to discuss these these issues. Uh, again, uh, if people want to uh, check out your work, uh, there is the uh, virtual series. Uh, technologies of power and we'll have a link to that in the show description and maybe uh we will try to put some links to uh charities and other you know things that people could do uh to try and get involved in this uh so yes thank you again and uh thanks for having me absolutely thank you